while we are just hurtling toward the July 4th holiday week. Annual fireworks displays are back on, and we suspect grills are heating up in anticipation of some serious barbecuing. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. What that means is we are now in the post-COVID period. We'll hear from a former Nexium coach who worked closely with Allison Mack, the former actress who faces sentencing next week for her crimes related to the cult-like organization. Because of what I knew of Allison and what I knew of Keith, the fact that it would get that dark didn't surprise me. We'll talk to reporter Ed McKinley about his deep dive into the Child Victims Act as the look-back window for bringing lawsuits comes to a close. It provides a window into how this abuse occurred and how it was abetted for so long. And we'll say farewell to our longtime business editor, Eric Anderson, who's got some great stories to tell. February of 1970, I got my first newspaper job as a display advertising messenger. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, Susan Mahalik, Managing Editor for News. Thank you for joining us this week. We're going to go over the top headlines. Let's start with Governor Andrew Cuomo rescinding the coronavirus emergency declaration. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, certainly, Jess. Thank you. So on Wednesday of this week, Governor Cuomo declared that the coronavirus emergency in New York State is officially over as of Thursday, June 24th. What that means is we are now in the post-COVID period, and this is happening because at least 70% of New Yorkers who are eligible for vaccines against the virus have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, That 70% threshold isn't something that New York made up. Um, We're following uh, federal guidelines on that. And for regular citizens like you and me, that means that we can pretty much return back to normal life if we're vaccinated. And for Cuomo, it means on a political level, uh, his expanded powers to change laws and regulations um, that interfered with uh, the state's efforts to fight the uh, virus are now expired. Um, That was a a point of political contention as the uh, pandemic wore on that, you know, he had too much power to, you know, shift things in the directions he wanted them to go. During the the height of the crisis, Cuomo's profile, of course, was raised nationally as people across the country tuned into his daily uh, briefings about the virus. And this was especially so uh, during the administration of former President Donald Trump, when there wasn't a lot of news coming out of Washington. People across the country sort of looked to Cuomo as, as a leader. Of course, in recent months, Cuomo has been on the defense after a lot of uh, questions have been raised about his counting of 
coronavirus deaths among nursing home residents and how the state dealt with that. And also numerous women have come forward with allegations of uh, sexual harassment. So he's uh, on the defense lately. And he's also been taking heat over the uh, $5 million book deal that came out of his rise in fame uh, for dealing with the coronavirus crisis. And so as of today, Jess, we can go back to life as normal, according to Governor Cuomo. Well, that is something. I mean, think about us last year at this time or even, you know, a year and a half ago, and it's kind of world's different. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting summer. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I was in the grocery store the other day and I walked in without a mask on. And then I was I saw that the workers all had masks on. So I quickly put a mask on and it's like, OK, what's the what's the protocol? But at a drugstore, no one, not even the pharmacists had masks, masks on. So it's sort of, you know, getting used to what that's like. I was walking the dog last night and two little kids came off of our front porch and wanted to pet the dog. And I was like, oh, my gosh, when's the last time this happened? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a different world. Um, but an exciting one. Um, all right, let's move on to local primaries. Primary day was Tuesday, June 22nd this year here in New York. Uh, what what came out of primary day this year locally? Well, in the city of Albany, uh, Mayor Kathy Sheehan soared to victory in, in the Democratic primary. She defeated uh, Reverend Valerie Faust in a, a primary that had extremely low turnout. Um, and that was not unexpected. Probably some more interesting things were happening in Schenectady County, where um, one of the trends that emerged was that um, it was a good night for candidates of color and a, a mixed bag for those from the Democratic establishment. There were two black newcomers who look like they're well positioned to win city council seats when they challenged uh, the Democratic backed candidates. And also in uh, the city of Troy, there were uh, some uh, primary candidates who emerged who might not have been expected. Um, if you want to take a look uh, at more, you can check out timesunion.com to get the lowdown. Yes, we have full coverage of all of the primaries uh, locally around here on timesunion.com. All right, last topic today. Uh, Allison Mack, the former actress turned Nexium leader of sorts underneath Keith Raniere, the Vanguard. She's finally getting her sentence hearing next week. What can you tell us about what we're going to see? So earlier this week, we reported that federal prosecutors are asking the judge for leniency in dealing with Mac. Um, and that's because she provided key evidence against uh, Keith Raniere, the leader of the cult-like organization Nexium that was based in Colony and that had many members living in the town of Half Moon. Prosecutors said that uh, Mac, who's now 38, gave them a recording of Ranieri instructing her about how the female slaves, I'm putting that in quotation marks, in a secret group called Dominus Obsequius Sororium, or DOS, also known as the Vow, should be branded to make it look as if they had not been coerced in, into having this done to them. If you remember, um, there was a secret group that, you know, women were, were enticed to be in this group, thinking that it was going to help them, you know, become their best selves. And they were convinced to be branded with what turned out to be initials of Keith Raniere. 
when the uh, mother of one of the members of this group was able to get attention from the New York Times, that's when the Nexium story and case blew wide open. So this audio recording of, of Ranieri, you know, explaining how to make it appear as if these women had not been coerced played uh, a key role in um, the case. Ranieri, of course, was convicted of all counts uh, last June, and that included um, sex trafficking and forced labor, among many other charges. And Mac is scheduled to be sentenced on June 30th or possibly July 1st. And um, she has pleaded guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy charges. Sentencing guidelines would call for her to receive at least 14 years in prison. But because she did provide this evidence against Ranieri, prosecutors are asking a judge to go a little bit light on her sentence. And you might remember that she was one of the eight first line masters in that secret club. They reported directly to Ranieri. So it was like sort of the line between these women and Ranieri. It sort of showed that he was involved in that. Yes, and we'll have full coverage of that sentence hearing next week down in Brooklyn. Also, if you are eager for more Nexium news, uh, we have another podcast, our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. Check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. Susan, thank you so much for joining me this week. All right. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. As we discussed during the last segment, former Smallville actress Allison Mack faces sentencing next week for her crimes involving Nexium, the colony-based purported self-help organization led by the now-convicted Keith Ranieri. Ahead of Mack's appearance in a Brooklyn courtroom on Tuesday, criminal justice reporter Rob Gavin spoke with former Nexium coach Tabby Chapman. She worked closely with Allison Mack during her time with Nexium, and she talked about her experience. One of the reasons I think you're such an interesting person to, to speak to really at any time about Nexium, but with Allison Mack's sentencing coming up next week, you're someone whose story it's a little bit different because we hear about Nexium and we think so much about people in Hollywood or tied to the movie industry or people with a lot of money in Mexico. And that's not your story at all. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what brought you into Nexium? Yeah, well, um, my, I guess, entrance into Nexium started when I was pretty young. Uh, I, in college, I decided to um, kind of focus my career on developing like websites and community-based sites. So I had started this fan site for Allison because I loved the show Smallville. So um, I had started working with Allison's fans and everything. And at some point it just sort of became a natural, I guess, effect of Allison and I kind of partnering up to be, you know, partners on her website. And um, the very first time I went to go meet her in person uh, in Nexium, it was uh, immediately, it was, oh, hey, there's this program, Nexium, that um, I really want you to take. And, and I'm asking anyone who works for me to take it so that I could make sure that I'm building this sort of ethical team of people. The promise, I guess, the lure for me in particular was, you know, Allison had promised me that, that Nexium would help me, I guess, fight this never-ending loneliness that I had felt my whole life and so I thought okay well I, I want to work for Allison and wow I could like get rid of this loneliness and so 
that was my selling point, you know? And what was Allison like when you first meet Allison Mack? She's on this show. I have to confess, I haven't watched a whole lot of Smallville. What first impression did the the character in real life who in the fictional world was Chloe Sullivan, best friend of Clark Kent. What did she, how did she strike you in when you first met Allison? What was she like? No one's ever asked me that question. That's interesting. Um, magical, like charming, like wonderful. She's, she was the kind of person that you wanted to be next to because the sort of positive energy that, well, I guess the sort of energy that, that she would exude was something that you wanted like a drug almost you know um sometimes it was positive and sometimes it was very clearly um you know filled with some negative energy but even with the negative energy it was so like charismatic that you really wanted to be in her presence when you join first start taking classes it's in vancouver i believe right so i moved from california to vancouver to work you know more closely with allison on her website and everything. We were always coming up with these cute little ideas of, of ways to engage her fans. And, and while I was there, I started taking, you know, ethos classes and things like that in Vancouver. At some point, I guess with a lot of people, they get further into you decide, I'm gonna go deeper into this community. And you end up moving to the Albany area. How close did you work with Allison Mack when you come to Albany? And, and what part did Allison play in that? So initially, Allison didn't live in Albany. She didn't move to Albany until a little bit later. She maybe around uh, 2009, 2010. So prior to that, she was just sort of traveling back and forth frequently. Generally, I would see Allison every time she visited because I would help her with her website or with, you know, I'm the one that taught her how to use Twitter. And, you know, I remember that <laughs> very clearly. Yeah. Um, you know, so I worked pretty closely with her on those website projects or the little like businesses she thought of like Juicy Beach and stuff like that. Like I was working pretty directly with them. I think she had a poetry project. So anyway, there was always some type of project that, that I was working with her on every time she came. Um, she, since she wasn't my coach, we didn't have necessarily a reason to have direct, like direct access. Once she was like validated as someone who was sort of important in the organization, I, that's my opinion anyway, um, that like, you can't help, but to give feedback to people, it's kind of like that Stanford prison experiment, right? So once you get the power, you, you can't help, but to use it to people. And I think that that's sort of really where our, our relationship professional and or personal started to take a severe nosedive because for, you know, I thought she was going to be this safe entity that would make me feel that charisma, that charm that I had originally felt, but instead it turned into like um, adjunct criticism and and feedback from the organization. When you heard that Allison Mack and Keith Raniere were charged back in 2018 in Mexico, near the first two, and you start hearing about DOS and all these things. What what went through your mind? It, it was this dichotomy, right? So one was like, oh my goodness, I, I don't know what to think. And then the other one was, wow, this is not surprising or shocking at all. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I had to go through my own journey of like instant, instant journey of rec- reckoning, I guess. So, you know, I had been like denying many, many times, oh, this is not a cult, this is not a cult, this is not a cult. And then we get to this day that Keith is arrested 
And, you know, I think it was a couple of days later that the indictment was unsealed. And then that's when we find out that Allison's in hot trouble and stuff like that. You know, I was, I was in a, a, a state of shock because I, I had immediately sort of placed myself in that, I guess, because I had been involved, right? Involved in the, in the program in and of itself. So yeah, I just dealt with like shock. And like I said, also, none of it surprised me. Um, because of what I knew of Allison and what I knew of Keith, the fact that it would get that dark didn't surprise me. When you look at Allison Mack, she's described as someone who could be very charming, but could also be extremely vindictive, uh, extremely controlling. She did not come off well during the trial of Keith Raniere. And I say that because we heard former DOS members testify. And as I think you know, the stories of the control of the, the various trips that were taken, talk about Allison Mack and what it was like to be on the wrong side of Allison Mack, the darker side of Allison Mack. <laughs> the dark side. Um, there were times when my relationship with Allison was, you know, great, like a, a good friend. And then sometimes even on a dime, and like things would be great. And then I would make a comment and this sort of like lashing out would occur. And I would leave crying with my head held down and, you know, not able to really function for days. So it, it became this um, sort of intermittent reward system whereby occasionally Allison was so fabulous, you know, that kind of almost that battered wife syndrome, although I, it's not really that type of relationship, but kind of like, oh, well, sometimes they're good to me, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I feel like you, if you're close to someone like that, you slide with them until you realize that, hey, this is no longer healthy. What was your reaction when, when you heard that the government asked uh, Judge Nicholas Garofis to show leniency to Allison Mack showing that she had offered what they called some substantial cooperation against Keith Raniere and Claire Bronfman as well. Um, and that she actually provided a very disturbing tape, if you haven't heard it, in which he is dictating how women in DOS should be uh, branded. Um, but what, what did you think when you heard that the government was asking for leniency to Allison, to the judge? I, um, my partner often points out that I'm a Gemini, so I always have like a duality in my thoughts to some degree, you know? So the very first thing I thought was, oh, wow, maybe she can be re rehabilitated. Like maybe this can work. And then on the flip side of that, I was thinking, um, you know, depending on what her mind frame is, it also could be a very strategic like process of, well, if I do this and I know I'll be probably given some type of leniency. And neither one is more important than the other in that case. Um, but yeah, I remember feeling a little bit of relief that, that she did cooperate. But at the same time, I did note, and I think it's important to note, is that the, the government and the, the prosecutors stated very bluntly that, that there, there could have been more help had she like, cooperated earlier. And I think that they, they didn't put that in there for fun, you know. I think that's an important thing for us to know. What do you think would be a fair sentence for Allison Mack? Oh, that's a loaded question. Uh, first it of is. all, 
I just <laughs> I I do trust the judge that he's going to put Allison in the right in the right place. So um that's that's really like ultimately my answer. I I feel like if there is a possibility of rehabilitation for her, that that she should go into that facility for the length of time it might take her to like fully kind of shed this harm that she's you know uh, that's been done to her right so um i don't really know per se what the sentencing i don't i don't know how sentencing works but i do know that if you know if there is a possibility of rehabilitation then whatever would facilitate that the most to hear more of this conversation and for more of the Times Union's coverage of the Nexium saga, check out our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, wherever you listen to podcasts. After the break, we'll look at what's happened in the two years since the Child Victims Act passed in New York. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Victims have filed nearly 6,000 court cases in New York since the Child Victims Act passed in 2019. Yet none of those cases have gone to trial. And many details of alleged cover-ups of abuse by institutions like the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts of America remain a mystery. Reporter Ed McKinley has taken a deep dive into what's transpired since the CBA took effect nearly two years ago, and what's happening now that the so-called look-back window is closing? Here's a conversation I had with him recently about it. Give me kind of like a history of the Child Victims Act, you know, when it passed and, and kind of what's happened in the last two years. The history of the Child Victims Act really goes back to 2002. When you talk with people that work in child advocacy and child welfare, you hear a lot about the Boston Globe series on the Catholic Church in 2002 that won the Pulitzer Prize. There's a there's a movie that won Best Picture about it. It's this very famous story about how the Catholic Church there, um, priests had been abusing kids and there was this sort of institutional cover-up. And pardon my language, but I think that was basically an oh shit moment for people all across the world that were in charge of taking care of kids. Since then, we've learned that institutions... Catholic Church, not just in Boston, but across the world, the Boy Scouts, foster care systems, summer camps, youth sports, gymnastics, you know, gynecologists, doctor's offices generally. You hear about these abuse scandals all over the place where it's sort of institutionalized and people keep it under wraps for a long time using using those institutions. So the Child Victims Act was introduced a few years after that in like 2006, I think. 
And for 13 years, while the Republicans were in charge of the state Senate, it got blocked. Um, it was opposed by the Catholic Church. They were they were the primary institution or, or force that was advocating against this bill. And I know that from, from speaking with the bill's sponsors and from other people who were involved. The church would have priests speaking from the pulpit in the home districts of legislators, encouraging them not to vote for this. And, you know, that, that had, they had a lot of sway and it, and it got it blocked for a long time. And uh, even when it eventually passed the assembly, the Republicans wouldn't bring it to a vote in the Senate, despite, you know, sort of claiming that there was enough support for it. So the Democrats take back the state Senate um, in the 2018 elections, and the Child Victims Act is ultimately passed in 2019 and signed into law on Valentine's Day, 2019. And the bill or the law does two key things. The first one is that it, it opened up forever the statute of limitations by a certain number of years, you know, for, for a lot longer, I think you have decades longer to bring child abuse cases forward, criminal charges. But the second one, and, and what has generated probably the most news coverage, is that it created this look back window where people, regardless of how long ago the abuse took place, they could if they could find a lawyer, they could bring a lawsuit forward, even if it was from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It was a window in terms of there was a window open to bring to bring lawsuits. But if you read through these lawsuits, you know, as a journalist, as an advocate, as someone who's interested in this, it provides a window into how this abuse occurred and how it was abetted for so long. Um, so it's a really interesting thing to write about and cover. And it really it really is a window in every sense of the word because of how much light you can shine onto this through it. Now, the article that you wrote, now this is part of a series, and the other two parts of that series will come out next month, July. Uh, But in this piece, you set the stage, as you just did, and you also talk about some of the numbers of cases that have been filed around the state since the Child Victims Act passed. Can you kind of give us a picture of where we are today with all of that? So the TU and, and myself personally have been covering these cases that have been piling up from the Child Victims Act or the CVA, as we call it, for a while so the first step in the series was we took all the data from the state courts of every Child Victims Act case that's been filed, and we crunched those numbers by county. And we learned that Albany County actually has the highest rate of Child Victims Act cases of any county in the state, uh, adjusted for the population, more than New York per the number of people that are living here. So we look in, at the capital region and we see, okay, well, where are all these cases coming from? Who are the defendants? And about 74% of the time, the cases against the Catholic Church, uh, particularly the Albany Diocese, uh, 9% of the time, it's the Boy Scouts. And then, you know, there's a grab bag of others that uh, other churches, uh, healthcare, county foster care systems, which are a much bigger problem downstate, but, but still, a, you know, a source of a few of the cases up here. And then in the smallest category, is cases against other individuals, a stranger, an uncle, you know, a family member, a neighbor. Um, And the reason that these are so few, despite the fact that research shows that the vast, vast majority of the actual abuse that's taking place is that kind of abuse, rather than people that are tied to institutions, is just that all too often those people don't have the money to pay for it as defendants. Um, There's no deep pockets that the lawyers can sign on and say, okay, well, you're the plaintiff. You don't need to pay me right away. We're going after to get the settlement and that's where I'll get my pay. So it makes it very difficult to pursue those individuals. 
Now talk about more about the Catholic Church here being the largest uh, focus of all of these cases. Not the Diocese of Albany, but other dioceses around the state and the country have filed for bankruptcy to try to get around these things. Can you talk more about that? Depending on who you ask, bankruptcy is either a necessary and prudent step to protect assets that, that could be lost. You know, that's how the church would say, you know, it's our job to take care of the money that we have. But what advocates would say is that it's sort of this tactic to A, decrease the number of payouts that they're going to give to survivors. They end up paying out less than they would if all of these cases were were taken to their conclusion and settled. And B, what they do is actually it halts the discovery process in these cases. And the discovery happens during a lawsuit right after it's filed and there's the legal back and forth. And then the court basically says, okay, well, let's let's investigate this. Let's bring people in for depositions and interviews and let's get the internal records that, that you can require the church to hand over that they wouldn't normally have to. For four of the eight dioceses, they declared bankruptcy, but, but the Albany diocese has not, despite hundreds of cases against it. Um, so it remains to be seen where they're headed with that. There's a couple more months in the look back window. Um, you know, some people suspect that they might they might go down that road at a later date. But for now, discovery is proceeding against the Albany diocese. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see what what comes of that. For you, what was the hardest thing about reporting this series? The interviews definitely are, are the hardest thing about reporting on this. Um, this the story that, that we're talking about was a lot of data stuff a lot of speaking with advocates and reading through the legal complaints and reading the the legal narratives of what, what people went through can be really, really hard. But in other stories that I've written about this, it's speaking with people about the worst thing that ever happened to them that they don't want to define them, but it has often defined them. A lot of these people are, are in therapy, have had issues with substance abuse. I think in one interview I had with someone, they said, you know, the, the biggest tragedy here is that I'll never know what I could have been if this didn't happen to me, as if it had sort of taken away a piece of them and they could never have that back. And, you know, it's their story. It's their experience. And I'm just trying to write about it for the newspaper. But I think if you want to write about it well, you, you have to force yourself to empathize and to sort of take on a little bit of that suffering. Cause if you don't empathize, if you don't really try to understand, you know, you're not going to write it up effectively. You're not going to communicate how they really feel. You sort of have to really force yourself to take it on and feel it. And that, that can be really hard, but I, but I think it's really important because this is such a momentous thing to write about that has affected not just the 6,000 people who have brought lawsuits, but who knows how many more, and their families, and, and these, these whole communities, really. What's in store for the next two installments of this series? What can you tell us? As we talked about earlier, we identified the Catholic Church as number one and the Boy Scouts as number two of the sources of, of the claims. So what we're hoping to do is try to tell the definitive story of these abuse allegations against those two institutions. So we're hoping to look at all the court records and speak with, with some survivors to put together a timeline and to really try to understand, you know, how this has played out over years and how many alleged predators we're talking about and, and when it occurred. All right. Well, watch out for that on timesunion.com next month. Thank you so much, Ed, for joining me. Yeah, thank you. 
Times Union business editor Eric Anderson is retiring this month after more than a decade and a half on the job. And before he joined us, he was a longtime business and news editor at other local papers. So it's fair to say he's got a lot of stories to tell about covering the region. I caught up with him before his last day. So how long have you been at the Times Union? The Times Union, I believe, oh gosh, 2005, June, I think it was, might have been July, what, 15, 16 years? Wow. And where were you before that? Tell me about your career. Oh, okay. When it was clear that I was not going to become a physicist at RPI, my parents suggested I take it a year off. So I did in 19, February of 1970, I got my first newspaper job as a display advertising messenger, picked up some skills and eventually became assistant city editor at the Troy Record. That was, what, 1973? And then I was there until our new owners at the Record decided to launch a daily newspaper in St. Louis. I got um, pegged to go out there and help with that. And we went out of business six months later and came back, worked at the Gazette for 15 years, and then moved on to the TU. Tell me about your time with the Times Union specifically. What did you start out doing here? I was hired uh, as assistant business editor and um, became business editor about four years later. At the Troy Record prior to that in the Gazette, were you covering business there as well? Yes. Actually, the official move to business from actually General News occurred when I went to St. Louis and they needed a, a business writer there. I did pick up an MBA as, at RPI as well and um, as an undergrad at uh, UAlbany. I studied sociology and economics, so I had a little bit of background. Well, fantastic. Give me like two or three stories, I guess, that, that just really stuck out to you uh, during your time in the Times Union that, that you worked oh. on. I guess the Times Union, the big one, was probably the, the Great Recession, mm-hmm. something that we had to cover over a period of a couple of years. And um, whenever we write economy stories now, it sort of serves as a sort of a base um, for how bad things could actually get. And we're still in this, uh, the uh, pandemic. We saw once again figures that rivaled those of the Great Recession, job losses, uh, slump in economic activity. At first week, real, real estate market, but now that re- seems to be really bouncing back strongly. So there are a number of things like that. One of the things that I think is we've always tried to do with our business news coverage is a write it for the general audience that differentiates us from some of the more special interest publications that probably are being written for the so-called um, C-suite, uh, you know, the CEOs and CFOs and people like that. Because so many of these issues um, in business and economics are so important to individuals and their quality of life. Tell me some of your other, like in your career beyond the Times Union, what were some of the fav- your favorite stories that you covered? Well, this is probably the favorite and it, and it does involve the Times Union. October 4th, uh, 1987, um, we had a really cold rain pouring down when when I went to sleep uh, the night before. And the next morning, the rain suddenly stopped and we heard nothing. And then we started hearing the snapping of branches and it had turned to snow. It was a heavy, wet snow. We, I think in Troy, we had more than, more than a foot and all the power went out. 
and power went out on Wolf Road as well. We ended up that day publishing what was then um, a joint, we combined basically the afternoon paper that was still being published then, that was the Knickerbocker News, and the morning paper, the Times Union, under one masthead and printed it on the Troy Records presses. Uh, everybody at the TU had to come over and like learn how to use our computers in wow. 10 minutes. <laughs> and, That's and, wild. Yeah, we had we had similar computers in the advertising department. I, I'm not sure which one of us worked in the advertising computers and the other ones worked on editorial computers. And um, got we got the Times Union Nick News out and we also got the Troy record out. It was That's uh, amazing. The experience, yes. <laughs> so that's so, the one and only time that's ever happened, I'm guessing. Yes, we the papers in the area do have um agreements to if somebody loses power or the press breaks, typically um they can get it printed at one of the other daily papers. Yeah. How very yeah. collegial. I love of, that. A lot of teamwork there. Moving on to the future, what what's next for you? What are you looking to do after you, after you leave us this week? <laughs> um, good question. I we my wife and I plan to travel. She is a, a retired middle school science teacher, and uh, we will probably take some trips. Um, we already have a few few plane tickets and a set of train tickets lined up. I'll probably continue some volunteer work. I had worked uh, for a. Um, food pantry in Troy, and I'll, I'll continue to do that. And also probably we'll do some research for, at the um, local, um, the Hart Cluett Museum, the, the local historical society as well. And I don't know, I'll probably perhaps pursue some writing opportunities, some freelance work, but uh, we're most definitely looking forward to travel. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Susan Mahalik, Rob Gavin, Ed McKinley, and Eric Anderson for their reporting and contribution to this episode. Thank you.